0: Welcome to this episode of Ten Thousand Posts, the show about posting and internet culture, uh, but also sometimes things that are not about that. But things that we see on, we read online sometimes. That was a very botched uh, intro. Part of the reason why is because uh, it's just me today. My name is Hussein. For people who are listening to this for the first time, my uh, co-host Phoebe is away today, unfortunately. Uh, nevertheless, do check out episodes, uh, with her both on this free feed and on our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash 10 K post podcast, uh, where she is on basically all the episodes. It is, there's some very good content on there. Uh, especially the ones that she has done uh, solo. Five bucks a month also helps us to run the show, do it without ads, and to remain editorially independent. This week, uh, we are joined by Beatrice Adler-Bolton, who's an artist and writer. Beatrice is also a co-host on the podcast Deaf Panel, a podcast about the political economy of health, and she's a co-author of Health Communism, a Surplus Manifesto. Beatrice, how's it going?
1: Great. Thanks so much for asking me on.
0: Uh, I'm really excited to do this. Uh, I read Health uh, Communism over the past week. Uh, it is a really good, dense, but really, really interesting book for people who, are like, I guess for like our UK listeners, um, like, really, you know, at a time when uh, the NHS is kind of it, it's been in collapse for a while, but where the NHS is sort of really vi- like verging on a state of quite material collapse. I feel like everyone who was uh, sort of like had to interface with a hospital in some capacity. Which has been like quite a lot of people considering like COVID and post-COVID uh, types of care. They will have seen like on a very like visual level the state that the NHS and NHS hospitals have been in. Um, but it's also sparked a conversation in some circles around what the future of healthcare, what different forms of healthcare could look like. But more broadly, uh, what we actually mean by healthcare, and, and this book sort of uh, really interrogates that idea of what we think about and what we talk about when we talk about health and what we ought to be maybe talking about instead. Um, that might've been a really botched interest of Beatrice. <laughs> uh, for, people who haven't <laughs> read, who, for people who haven't read the book, uh, or who are not familiar with it, uh, can you, uh, tell, uh, to, can you tell listeners what is health communism? What sort of led you, uh, and your co-writer to kind of embark on this project? Um, and what's like the broader context of it? Because obviously you aren't talking about it from the context of, uh, the British, uh, healthcare system.
1: Right. No, I actually think you set it up quite well. Just saying, um, <laughs> yeah, you thanks know, a lot. <laughs> the, the, the real sort of core project of, of the book, but also the podcast that we do Death panel is really focused on trying to, um, not like force the left to think about health differently but show uh, all the different like sort of factions on the left whether that's people who are really involved in labor organizing or who are involved in other issues how health as a, a concept actually is also central to the lot of a lot of the things that we're already working on and caring about whether that's you know job conditions or covid or um, you know, disability. There's there's a kind of broader uh, way that we we tend to put all these different things into categories, whether that's medical care or education or the environment or housing or healthcare, right? But at the end of the day, health is actually like a much more social phenomenon than it is about mm. like medical care directly. There's an idea called um, the social determinants of health, and this comes from like you know mm. public health, like academy um concepts and that's the idea that like yeah you can get all the medical care you want and still you're not guaranteed a healthy life right Mm. and part of what guarantees a healthy life is the total social structural political economic and physical environment that you're living in and so Mm. for example like this is actually how Institutions like the WHO, the World Health Organization, conceptualize health. They say health is not merely the absence of like physical disease, um, but it's a total social and psychological well being. Now, if Mm. that's what health is, right, Mm. then how is health possible under capitalism? It's absolutely not possible Mm. for so many people. Um, Whether you're talking about the United States, whether you're talking about the global South, whether you're talking about Palestine, for example, the UK, the US, Canada, whether you have socialized medicine or not, there is Mm. a very high bar for achieving total psycho social and physical well-being, right? And part of this kind of game is that we're all obligated to be healthy, right? There's tremendous pressure Mm. to maintain our health because our health is also our labor power. Our health is how we pay the bills, how we show up for work and keep our job or get a better job or justify the raise or justify the sick days that we're taking even. And so what You know, we wanted to show, and we were sort of coming at this from the perspective that um, we work from, which is like centered in the experience of chronic illness and disability in the United States. But if you talk to anyone who's chronically ill, whether you're in the U.S., you're in the in Canada, you're anywhere, you're in the U.K., it's a pretty similar experience, despite the fact that Mm. someone different is paying the bills in each sort of locale, right? So part of the idea with health communism is to point towards the fact that what we think of as health is actually just one tiny, tiny, tiny piece of what it actually is. Mm. And that at the same time, that kind of trick that it's on us to achieve the literally impossible under capitalism, and that Mm. it's our responsibility if we're not healthy, to the Mm. point that we're punished in terms of labor discipline, um, that this actually has this long history that is very visible, but Exist often within the realm of like disability history, which is not something that is um actually well known because for a long time, disabled people, um many of them lived their entire lives in in sort of large scale hospital institutions, mm. both in the United States and the u k. These were the centers of of uh, institutionalization. So disability history is hard to separate from from medical history, right? But if we start to look at some of these, pieces that we bring together in the book, these histories that we try and walk folks through, you start to see um, how (laughs) you start to see so many parallels to to your current life, actually, regardless of where you're living, because at the end of the day, health Mm. is sort of organized around this bait and switch. It's a carrot and stick approach, right? Where you're supposed to be healthy, and yet healthy is something that most of us are never going to achieve, especially folks who are living in places where, you know, you're under colonial occupation, mm. living in places where, um, you know, for example, like the <laughs> the uh in, in Palestine, like not only is Palestine blockaded, but it also is a pharmaceutical dumping ground. So Israel will send Palestine medications that are about to expire. And then those have nowhere to go, right? So if we start to mm. think of like Health, right, in Palestine, where you have a population that is under occupation, that is under, you know, assault, war, uh, intentional infliction of disability on the population, limited medical supplies, and pharmaceutical waste that you can't get rid of. Like, how Mm. would health ever be possible for anyone living there? And that's fundamentally the kind of world that has left us we're trying to fight against and Mm. destroy and build things that are new. But we can't, you know, let go of some of these sort of old ideas about health and human worth and value if we don't actually understand like what is at the core of it. So basically, that's all to say like this book is hopefully one sort of small stone in the pond to try and like raise the water level and get the left to think about health very differently. Mm. Not just because we should, but because it gives us a tactical advantage.
0: Mm. There's a line that I uh, that I uh there's a few was a few there's a like a lot of sections that I sort of highlighted, but one one that I think Really, sort of clicked was actually like in the beginning where it says, "Health is capitalism's vulnerability. There is no capital without health. It is capital's host. And capitalism's greatest trick is convincing us uh, that it exists independent of this parasitic grasp. that it, but it is indifferent. And I think like that's such an interesting line for me because I sort of, I totally get then what you're saying, which is, I think even if you kind of, are like people who will, you know, even like, even if you are like a, consider yourself to be a leftist, to be an activist and so on. Um, I think the issue of health is often kind of considered to be separate from like broader socio-political realms. Right. I think maybe less so, uh, or or maybe like that's kind of been lesser of the case in at at least like maybe during the early years of the pandemic. Um, but the idea that like, you know you can sort of and and I, I wondered what your sort of thoughts were on how health because I think you highlighted it where like health is so sort of central to um you know so, so like social well-being, but it's also so intrinsically linked to like how uh, capital sort of understands like economic performance. and so within that kind of lays what I sort of see to be like a contradiction because you know i one one thing I was thinking about while um in while like I, I was like reading your book was the ways in which like the bars of health or like how we sort of deem a healthy person have changed. And I know that historically that's always been the case, but I've been thinking about like, uh, you know, gig economy workers, for example, who undertake, you know, a great deal of like physical labor every day. Um, but, you know, and within that, they're like, you know, their health, their health is like massively impacted. And even under sort of like national healthcare systems, they, Often don't have the access to like healthcare that they need, but they are sort of you know that type of health is so fundamental to how at least like part of like at least the British economy runs. And I wondered whether I wondered like what you're. I, I know that's like a hodgepodge of thoughts, but I guess what the question that I'm sort of getting down to is how how is it that within even kind of it's like attempts to sort of imagine what a world without capitalism sort of looks like the issues around health are not always considered or like not always kind of talked about in these broader sort of like social terms it is still considered to be like a separate entity if you know what i mean i wonder how much of it is this like the way in which we understand health and health provision to be an institutional project uh or like even just like is it is it kind of like a broader scientific, like you know the sort of scientification of health sort of means that we can't understand this as a you know communal project for lack of a better term Mm.
1: I think that's a great question. Oh well, it's a couple. It's a couple of questions. But the first to speak to the example of of the gig economy, right, and this central contradiction, and the idea that you know ultimately um, that capitalism's sort of greatest trick is convincing us again that um, it exists independent of our health, right? There, There is a, a tendency, I think, to personify capitalism and personify the state and, and sort of give it this idea of like, it has intent, right? And ultimately, That's not the case, right? Like the state, um, the uh, capitalism, the economy, these are social phenomena, right? Like these are things that exist because humans maintain them and our social structures maintain them and they're reproduced through all sorts of actions from really official things like laws or policies, or, you know, whatever um, military action, like real sort of obvious material stuff, but it's also upheld Mm. in very small ways, like incidentally, just in the ways that we like think of ourselves, for example. So when Mm. we look at the gig economy, this is a perfect example. The gig economy, I, I mean, I I uh, I don't know how old you are, but like I graduated from college in 2012. So I started. Around about, yeah, like, I, I graduated
0: around about the same time.
1: OK, yeah. So like you also are someone who, um, you know, was going through college and um, in the US, that means taking on like a considerable amount of debt in the middle of uh, the Great Recession. Right. And yeah. so you start to see the gig, the gig economy jobs like be floated to people like us who are in college. Like as a way to make money on the side and also sort of get flexibility and be able to like pursue a creative career after college or something like that. And it was talked about in this really Mm -hmm. like fucked up techno utopian way. And I remember being so frustrated because, like, part of the the sort of discourse was about like the casualization of labor relationships and mm-hmm. taking away any obligation for an employer to pay for healthcare, right? And yeah, um, it it was like kind of terrifying to be looking at, you know, leaving um, college, even though the laws had just changed in the U.S. and they said like you can stay on your parents' insurance until you're 26 now. But, like, Mm -hmm. in some ways, that enabled the explosion of the gig economy. That enabled, um, you know, a kind of delay in the discussion around, like, if we need to do something about healthcare, because it took that kind of cliff that folks like, you know, me were, uh, you know, like us, we were experiencing as we were graduating and about to face having to buy our own insurance in the US, which I recognize, obviously, is very different in the UK. Like this was a tremendous shift that was going on in, in the labor economy, right? Towards like less security, more precarity. And it was framed as a positive pro-worker thing. Mm. And and so what we see in the way that like the health of these populations um, of folks who are actually doing these jobs, which obviously, you know, ranges from so many different, like intersecting um, sort of groups of people who are on the, the edge of the economy already. You see the, the the disposability in real time, right, where it's like mm. the, the gig workers themselves are expected to maintain the, their bodies to be able to go in the rain and the snow and the weather that no one wants to go out in and to brave the elements and put themselves at risk mm. in the context of ongoing COVID spread and things like that, you know. And the the reward is quote unquote flexibility and control over your hours. Mm. You see the same thing in in Uber, right? And in all of these sort of different ways that the tech industry has um, enabled, like you know, the explosion of these forces that have casualized labor. And in the U.S., that comes with the rescinding of healthcare benefits. So it's it's even more extreme here. That kind of contradiction of like, well, it's on you to maintain yourself. It's on you to to buy your health insurance and get mm. your healthcare so that you can keep working, keep pushing your body to keep delivering for like DoorDash or whatever the, you know, fuck. Mm. It's like, and and at the end of the day, you know, we're we're still here in the US like questioning whether or not people deserve uh healthcare, because ultimately, mm. like the idea is that like if you were a good enough worker, you would have a job where you got that healthcare. And yet, even in the UK, as you have said, the same contradiction exists. So we know that universal health insurance, quote unquote, or our socialized medicine, isn't necessarily actually the thing that is creating this dynamic where, you know, folks are treated as both essential and disposable. We've seen this in COVID mm-hmm. in the way that, you know, healthcare workers are being continued to be subjected to all sorts of pressures on their time and labor, restrictions on their pay, you know, they're not being given hazard pay, and yet they're being exposed to COVID at the same rate that they've been exposed to COVID every fall, right? Like, unfortunately, just if you dismantle the testing infrastructure, you just make the number go down. Mm -hmm. You don't actually reduce the amount of like virus that's spreading. And whether you think COVID is a big deal or not, like I do, for the record, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, you know, it's like, even if we're just the flu that we're spreading this much, right? To be sick that much is a financial burden. You miss work. And all of these pressures are contributing to, to ridiculously poor ongoing labor conditions. So it's it's not even like the health insurance point, which in the US I think we focus on too much. Like it is the entire way that we conceptualize not just health, but work and mm. who is responsible for making sure that bodies show up to work every day. And that ultimately under capitalism is a private relationship. And it actually develops like concurrent with the development of capitalism. Um, in the third chapter of the book called labor, we talk about, um, actually we talk about the UK at length. We talk about the statutes of laborers, which are some of the mm-hmm. earliest classifications of types of non-working people and who's allowed to not be a worker, but they also you know, criminalize not working um, if you aren't a landowner. And this is in the wake of the Black Death, and this is in the wake of mm. so many workers in the lower class dying that the remaining workers had more power. And so as workers were starting to organize, as the kind of guild system had been shredded by the mass death, for for a couple decades but particularly like the really bad period that precedes like the 1400s right where you start to see the upper class getting nervous about losing control over the population um you know over how labor power is oriented and and who benefits the most from these systems of of production and this is you know something that continues through the 15 16 1700s through the industrial revolution, capitalism itself um, kind of develops concurrently with the privatization of health and with Mm. the beginnings of various ways of sort of sorting and categorizing different types of people. So it's like, yeah, we could separate it from science. We could separate it from medicine. We could separate it from the economy. We could separate it from the government. We could say this is a problem of bad doctors or insurance or not enough funding. But actually it's like it's all rotten at the core. And if you look Mm -hmm. at the core of capitalism, this conceptualization of health, this contradiction itself is actually so necessary to the way that it operates Mm. that as COVID has been a good example of this kind of pressure of like, we have to go back to normal regardless of like how much virus is spreading. You know, the idea of social murder is really important to like a Marxist analysis because Mm -hmm. it's not just saying that like, Systemic violence happens, right? But it's saying that like systemic violence is a systemic requirement for the normal functioning of capitalism.
0: Mm. I thought, I feel like one of the things that was really kind of quite telling and well, like what was like really quite informative in the book, uh, and you sort of touched on it, you, you touched on it just like a little earlier, was really this idea that the way in which we sort of understand healthcare uh, and all well, the way that we ought to sort of understand healthcare. Uh, is in these kind of like very, what's like the right term for it? I mean, I would ultimately describe it as these sort of like, like bizarre moral, like moralistic terms. These ones that kind of like are underlining it. And even sort of like, you know, there is, there is often this like romanticization of this, you know, the structure of the NHS and like the establishment of it. Um, but even kind of like within that, there is this sort of idea that you're kind of building this kind of healthcare system in service for certain kinds of people, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, certain, like, you know, you're, you're doing this in service for, uh, you know, kind of like national rebuilding for growth, you know, for sort of economic Mm -hmm. growth. And then like this, you know, and I, I didn't really know, like, like so much of this, I was like, so, you know, uh, I, I just did not know, like, any of this. And so it's kind of got me really thinking about, and it's not to sort of say that, oh, I'm kind of like now very like anti-NHS or whatever, but it is like this kind of broader idea that no, like the ways in which like we think about and talk about health are like talking about the ways in which like resources, like what resources are used and like who sort of benefits from them. And the extension of that, because as as long as I've sort of like been aware of politics and sort of conversations around the NHS, um, it has always been one of like politicians and other institutions trying to figure like trying to sort of debate over like which like who deserves healthcare and who doesn't. And we sort of know yeah. the groups of people that end up getting marginalized from that, um, you know, immigrants, refugees, uh, poor people, obviously, um, you know, and, and you know those aren't like separate categories by any means. It's just more like the types of how, the, how this is sort of categorized. Um, And then over time, like even that has sort of distilled to like, oh, you know, national newspapers kind of saying that if someone isn't looking for like a job that, you know, is, you know, is kind of like 30, 40 hours a week, then they should have their like, like their right to access an NHS hospital, like removed from them, you know, despite Mm -hmm. the fact for like, well, you know, number one, that's like fucking horrible and like inhumane, but also like, I think as you sort of alluded to the kind of, you know, The way in which that person's healthcare or like right to healthcare is framed is one that is like, well, they need to sort of be healthy enough to perform a particular kind of like, you know, a particular form of labor, but everything else is kind of redundant beyond that, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so I wondered like whether I'm sort of correct in how you analyze the types of the establishment of these types of systems, where it's like even in these kind of like broader nationally funded institutions like, uh, like healthcare institutions, the underlining framework is still one of like, you know, these systems are really deciding what, like who deserves the resources, like who, like, Mm -hmm. and what's, and what resources are effective. Cause I think this also feeds into how, like what met, what types of medical procedures and what types of medical uh, provisions are funded that are available to access. And those are often like, you know, when, when, when people talk about like, you know, NHS sort of only providing basic services and everything else kind of going to private healthcare, you know, I think that really hits on what you talk about, which is like, well, you know, what is the bare minimum of body like required for like a body to kind of perform a particular labor task? And in that case, like you aren't really talking about healthcare. What you are really talking about is, you know, providing a minimum amount of energy for like, a, you know, the line going up for like lack of a better phrase.
1: Well, I mean honestly, I think the NHS is such a, a really great example to be able to like zero in on here because it's it's not that like we don't want the NHS, right? Like mm. it in my hope is that someone reads health communism and comes away from it not, you know, being against the NHS, but realizing that the NHS is a floor, not a ceiling, mm. and that any t- attempts to further privatize the NHS, or not be frankly pushing to add services to the mm-hmm. NHS, is underselling what we deserve and what we're owed. And part of that speaks to what the point of the NHS is versus what the point of the NHS um, we imagine is, yes. if that makes sense. Yes. So, yeah, like, yeah. we hope and imagine and and have a deep desire because we want, like good lives without uh, unnecessary pain and suffering, right? Um, We hope that the NHS as an institution is there to provide us with medical care to help make our lives not so brutal, cruel, and short, right? Mm. What the NHS is actually there to do is to subsidize the costs of British businesses' labor force, right? Mm. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So it's there to not make... British people more healthy, even as a nationalist project, it's actually there to make British economy and British companies more healthy, it's there to give British companies a competitive advantage because a healthy population is a quote unquote better workforce, right? Like so if the NHS were seized for the purposes that we actually wish and hope and desire for the NHS, Mm. which is to provide medical care for people who reside in the United Kingdom and in that health system, right? Then mm. we would have to fundamentally transform the NHS as we know it to actually meet that true mandate that we hope for the NHS, mm-hmm. because right now it's organized towards these kind of bottom of the barrel bare minimums. The, the sort of push towards privatization is because people see um, ways to grow more wealth for the nation, for the imperial project, for the United mm. Kingdom, right in the commodification of health. So they're like saying, not just that, like, oh, we have to privatize, we have to privatize this, or else, like, the UK will run out of money and we can't take of all, take care of all these refugees. Like, they're just using that rhetoric to run cover for for their racism, right, and their mm. xenophobia, and their nationalism. But what they're also saying is they're like, how dare the United Kingdom keep this market from us where we mm. could be making money? So at the end of the day, when we're talking about who deserves healthcare, we're also talking about who society is for, right? Is yes, society yeah. for growing GDP or is society the thing that as human beings we live our lives in, right? Mm. And is yeah. it for us? Is it for the people or is it for wealth transfer and accumulation. And what's going on in the fight to privatize the NHS is not just a conversation about austerity. This is a fight for what the soul of the NHS actually should be, right? And so I hope that like, you know, I can, we can, you know, Artie and I really, um, my co-author and I, we really want to be speaking to like comrades in the US and the UK In Canada, you know, we have these three systems that are often talked about as being on a spectrum, right? Where the NHS is this top end of the spectrum, Canada's um, Medicare system, which differs from province to province is in the middle, and then the US is this sort of private commodified hell, right? And Mm. the, the, the frustrating thing is that in the US, we often will hold the NHS up and we'll hold Um, the Canadian Medicare system up as what we want and as the Mm -hmm. limit of like what our movements are demanding and what we need to survive. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, like what we actually need to be demanding is so much more than simply making carbon copies of these institutions, which at the end of the day Mm -hmm. are not actually oriented towards the goal. So you could go out there and say like healthcare is a human right. Like Mm. we need an American NHS and I'd be like, hell yeah, like we need an American NHS and we cannot stop there because we deserve so much more Mm. than reproducing an institution that's meant to grow wealth and subsidize, you know, the cost to employers and um, let that sort of become what healthcare is, which is part of why, you know, we aren't the kinds of... You know, this is like a longer like conversation about like human rights and rights discourse, but like that's why in the book we're not like saying like healthcare is a human right. We're saying like the demand needs to be all care for all people. And yeah. when you sit down and and start to figure out well, what does all care for all people mean? and how do we provision for that and how do we plan for that and how we how do we distribute resources for that that is how you design the institution that can accomplish like what people think the nhs is which is an institution mm-hmm. to care for us as we are born live age and die right just because we live in, in the place that is proximal to that system of care now like if we were to do that right we would have to start from scratch though because the nhs is not yet that and Mm. to think about it being privatized and rolled back and transformed into you know more american style managed care like that should be so fundamentally disgusting and frustrating to folks in the uk who are promised a system that will care for them and are delivered a system of medical wealth transfer instead
0: Mm. so on that note uh so this is like a good way of like then sort of going into how you and uh, Artev's kind of like thought about what the possible envisionings of like what health communism could be, um, and part of this is uh, so you so there's a note where you say our political projects must center the population's capital as marked as surplus. Um, and for people who haven't read the book uh, and are not familiar with this term, like what did you mean by what do you mean by surplus and how should we be thinking about it when we think about healthcare provision? I guess there's like a tack on questions about like, is even the term healthcare provision like useful if we're sort of trying to reimagine what that system could look like?
1: I mean, I think it's fine to use terms like healthcare provision. I think we're all at a point where we need to find language together to talk about what we really want um, and the kinds of things that we need and want to build. Um, You know, the, the term surplus is an old term, and it's initially um, the idea of a surplus population is something quite disparaging. Actually, it was a term that you know people like Malthus, who's you know a famous uh, early philosopher of capitalism, mm. who argues for depopulation or else, um, and you know is sort of pathologizes the poor as a social contagion. Um, you know, to describe uh, groups of people who were non-working, who were, um, you know, degenerate in his opinion and for, for any reason, whether that's because they're immigrants, whether that's because they're poor, whether that's because they're sick, disabled, you know, whatever, um, doesn't really matter whether that's because of their race, right? Because we can't uh, ignore the fact that, um, you know, through the social sort of establishment of medicine is also involved this very long history of the construction of like race as um, a, a, like a medicalized condition. In some cases, when we talk about like sort of literal things like drapedomania in the United States, where you see the pathologization of um, the act of like rebellion and resistance and running away from being um, an enslaved, you know, piece of property as a medical condition, right? Mm-hmm. Or that's the kind of ways that we see, for example, like schizophrenia applied very unevenly, um, where you have like the the likelihood of being diagnosed with schizophrenia is much higher if you're black, for example. Mm-hmm. So like the the kind of Construction of medicine, right, it has this very long history of um, marking of being part of what marks populations as as disposable. Basically, is is my point. And initially, surplus population was disparaging, and it was meant to describe, you know, non-working populations, um, not wanted populations, populations that were seen to be a burden, superfluous, extra, right. Um, and Marx and Engels actually, uh, you know, they, they write about the surplus populations. They come up with this idea called the surplus reserve army. Um, Mm. and they talk about the way that capitalism kind of forces there to always be like a group of people who are unemployed and, and that that is a tool to keep labor costs down and to force wages down. Right. Because it's like the threat of being thrown to the surplus population exists, Mm. um as a motivator to accept uh worse working conditions for example. So what we're doing is you know obviously Marx and Engels are like writing in the 1800s. So um mm. what we do in the book is we are updating the framework of surplus and it is uh not intended to be disparaging like you know the Malthus version but we're sort of um seizing it and appropriating it for ourselves and so I'm speaking from the position of like being chronically ill and disabled and, you know, trying to build a kind of sick left uh, long term. But this is also people who are working in jobs that are precarious, people who are on the edge of the economy for whatever reason, whether you're involved in a street economy or, um, quote unquote, legitimate, uh, you know, licit economy. Um. People who live in nursing homes, people who are in prison, people who are in jail, um, Mm. people who don't have documentation, people who live in occupied territories like in Palestine, um, people who live in colonial empires, um, in colonies like Puerto Rico. So Mm. you have um, these populations that for whatever reason um, exist categorically, not just in relation to like their identity, right? Like we're talking about literally how the state approaches them, how the state thinks of them, mm. treats them and how laws and policies are shaped around that, right? So it's not just like kind of looking at like, what are the identities that get you in the surplus class? What are the different experiences that get you in the surplus class? How do you get targeted and marked? We're, we're looking at more like how does the state actually instrumentalize these populations sort of, chew them up, spit them out, and use that process of sorting, counting, surveillance, medical care, yes, but also sometimes incarceration, um, whether that's in a nursing home or in a site of incarceration or in an immigration detention facility, right? Like There are um, moments where profit is to be made from this process, right? So the idea that the surplus class um, is a burden or is somehow without the economy is mm-hmm. actually ludicrous, right? Because ultimately, whether um, the whether the the care, quote unquote, whether that's surveillance or um, mm-hmm. medical care, like actually benefits the person, right? Like that money that has funded that goes into the economy and still builds the wealth for the nation and for the imperial project. So, like the United Stan- States, for example, can completely fucking abandon Puerto Rico, which is its colony that it occupies, um, just south of Florida, mm-hmm. and. You know, this is an island that has been ravaged by hurricanes that under the Obama administration um, was subject to, you know, this tremendously restrictive and brutal sort of debt regime where the is called promessa and and basically the us has been like extorting its own colony and stripping wealth and stripping resources abandoning the population you know it's it's um <laughs> and of course if there's any co- like anti-colonial resistance that's pathologized as you know people being quote unquote crazy and radical and quote unquote terrorism right so we see you know, not just the way that these identities are constructed, but how the state actually constructs itself in relationship mm. to the surplus class as a resource to be managed, extracted from, and abandoned in this sort of broad process of turning people into like human capital through uh, you know, kind of like developing systemic neglect.
0: Mm. This is this was like the reading experience of this book was a really kind of interesting way of just exploring and I think just really interrogating my own understandings of like how, uh, you know, uh, how, you know, yeah, just like how you sort of understand healthcare and how you understand like healthcare as like a social phenomenon. And I think like that's sort of really, I think, yeah, that's sort of really central to that. And I think as you were talking, I was sort of, because um, what were some of the other concepts that you introduce in the book, um, or at least kind of like repurpose in the book, um, there's a concept called like eugenic uh, eugenic and debt burdens. Um, and I wondered whether you could sort of explain that some more in terms of like how that is built into the ways in which uh, healthcare is, you know, uh, yeah, so how how it is sort of like selectively provided for, but also how it kind of marginalizes uh, lots of different people uh, in terms of mm-hmm. like both their access, but also like even the ways in which they are understood to be either healthy or unhealthy.
1: Such a good question. I really appreciate you asking about this because this is actually kind of like a big concept that can be hard to talk about in brief. So, you know, the the kind of surplus class as we've just sort of talked about, right? Like the narrative about what the surplus class is to the state, what surplus people are to the economy. Um, takes up this position that frames folks who end up in this class for whatever reason. And again, this includes getting laid off, um, being in precarious work like gig work, right? Where anyone Mm. who is sort of excluded from the uh, attendant, quote unquote, benefits of being a worker for whatever reason, or excluded Mm. from being a worker um, in the, quote unquote, legitimate legal sense. And um, also applies to children, by the way, just FYI. Mm. But like the um the narrative right about like why these people are excluded or why for example we need to approach provisioning resources for the surplus class with austerity first and foremost being the primary goal um austerity and also creating points for again reproducing wealth for the nation for the economy in the provision of services of course but like the the idea is that like we can't actually provide people with their needs like we always have to start from this point of compromise because these populations do not contribute to the economy as taxpayers and therefore are always kind of on the balance sheet as a quote unquote debt or eugenic burden and so you know This in the U.S. comes up a lot in discussion around uh, things like the debt ceiling or, Mm. um, you know, the like the federal debt in the U.S. And um, essentially the narrative whenever the debt ceiling comes up or how big the debt is in the U.S., the conversation sort of defaults to like, well, Mm. if we don't do austerity now we're going to bankrupt future generations, right? And like taxpayers now are, (laughs) um, you know, kind of abusing the system, taking more than they're putting in. And that ultimately what this is going to do is sort of undo the balance of society moving forward. Now, some of the very same arguments um, exist as justifying points for all different types of austerity. And so this kind of idea that Artie and I try and construct actually just using the idea of like this kind of debt burden framework that again is like something that's just like out and around um, in the world that we encounter all the time and using also the idea of um, a eugenic burden. So um, is it weird to explain what eugenics is briefly? Because I feel like sometimes no, 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 people please. know yeah. and sometimes they don't. So the eugenics movement obviously uh, is probably most well known for its association with um the Nazi T4 uh, program where, um, you know, folks were sort of sorted and gassed according to their diagnoses um, and things like that. And uh, it actually started in the United States and in the United Kingdom um, mm. <laughs> a little bit before, actually a while before um, the Nazis in the 30s and 40s, you know, pick that up. But um, the idea is basically that, we're kind of encoded with like a genetic destiny and yeah. it's kind of science fiction, right? So in part, you know, genetics lies sort of at the the core of this and statistics lies at the core of this, but eugenics is really kind of like armchair cosplay of these two things. And yet it, it tells a powerful story that reinforces um why certain people are in power. Right. And so it is a story about how like human evolution works that has persisted despite even being associated with like, you know, the, the Nazi, um, genocide programs. Right. So like, this Mm -hmm. is an idea that like, there are people in society who have bad genes. And when bad gene people are given resources, they proliferate and they make more bad gene people. And those bad gene people make more bad gene people. And then suddenly your kind of perfect society becomes not possible because you've bred a bunch of degenerate, dysgenic um, bad seeds, right? So it's kind of like, the social contagion idea around, you know, transness, like, but it's also kind of the idea that there are ways that we can scientifically um, look at people. It's not the idea, it's the fantasy that we can use science to look at people and determine if they're a good person that is good for society or not, and then divide and give resources accordingly. And so ultimately, the eugenics movement even became popular, you know, partially because they were reinforcing, like, existing class dynamics and saying that people who were born in the aristocracy were born there and had more resources because they were inherently biologically better um, mm. and that resources needed to be centralized with the ruling class because the ruling class was superior and needed those resources to flourish and that everybody else you know, was sort of subject to survival of the fittest because it was up to them to prove if they were actually fit enough to join the upper class, right? So actually eugenics Mm. and the idea of being able to sort of inherently use science, again, a fantasy, these guys are just fucking assholes and full (laughs) of it, right? Like, you know, the idea that you could look at someone's genes and predict that they were drunk, this is literally like a a, a type of interpretation that is so similar to phrenology, right? Like this is Mm. brow measuring (laughs) to figure out if someone's a liar or not, just you know, applied to genetics and heritability. So the idea is, right, like if we give disabled people, sick people, people on the margins of the economy, unemployed people, people who are gig workers, people who are not um, sufficiently proving themselves to be valuable for whatever reason, whether that's because society systemically devalues them or whether that's because there is something you know, about them that makes their labor power devalued or Mm. excludes them from the economy, for example, that those sort of social phenomenons aren't social phenomenons at all, but they're inherent characteristics of these populations. And if we Mm. allow people who are eugenic burdens to proliferate, it becomes a debt burden on the nation. Now,
0: Mm.
1: what's important is that, like, who is a burden? Who is dysgenic? Who is not welcome? is often highly subject to all sorts of biases and prejudices, right? Like if we think about this from the perspective of like the evangelical right in the United States, like quote unquote leftists, people who are Muslim, people Mm -hmm. who are black, you know, to them are a debt and eugenic burden. And it's a question as to whether they exist. You know, Palestine has been bombed by Israel for like a couple days now. And what we have seen left and right is people saying on the news, everyone in palestine is a like quote unquote savage and like israel is right to bomb the shit out of them and they deserve that and that's fucking bullshit right like this is a disposable mm. captive population under colonial occupation right and you have people uh, you know just jumping at the chance to say actually there's more nuance here and this mm. is you know necessitated genocide right like So these kinds of narratives that we tell ourselves about why certain populations get subject to more violence, more surveillance, more policing, more abandonment, and also those kind of negative, uh, like, you know, these are like the kind of positive uh, negative pressures, right? And then you have Mm. the negative negative pressures where you have divestment, right? So it's not just that we're layering extra shit on certain people. It's also that we layered divestment then on top of that, and this is all justified as being essential um, cost-benefit analysis to take resources away from populations that, if they were fully resourced, would, um, I guess, bring the country, the nation, or whatever, the empire, to ruin in a couple of generations. And this was really the argument that the eugenicists were making. Mm. This is the argument that the Nazis were making. This is the argument that contemporary fascists are making, uh, you know, especially about trans people right now. And mm. what we're sort of dealing with is at the same time, people step back and they're like, well, <laughs> eugenics ended in World War II. Like, that's a little harsh now. And really, yeah. like, eugenics is just a scien- like a scientific uh, hypothesis about why class power exists that attempts to take class and make that like innate biological destiny. So actually, eh, eugenics didn't really go anywhere. Yeah.
0: The argument, yeah. <laughs> the argument often is uses that. Well, I well, it's kind of like you know, well, we don't sort of do eugenics in like the sort of classical sense anymore. Like no one's using like calipers and stuff. But it brings me on to like this other question that you sort of address it like throughout the book. But I think is sort of really like useful for out because we on this show we talk a lot about like surveillance culture and we talk about the ways in which like communicative tools like are basically surveillance like are all like different layers of surveillance features. And then one thing I was thinking about when I was reading your book was how much surveillance culture is so so sort of embedded into pretty much like every kind of formal healthcare system uh, that you sort of address, right? And like what what are the implications of that surveillance or you know of that surveillance structure? Um, you know, how much it links back to sort of like old eugenicist uh, thinking. But the idea that like these types of like surveillance technologies, um, carceral technologies and so on, are basically able to tell the same myths as the eugenicist was doing like, you know, many centuries ago. The idea that like certain populations are more like prone to violence, are sort of like more prone to like kind of particular illnesses that warrant them to be uh, to, to be separated, to be incarcerated at you know sometimes, uh, or to sort of just be disenfranchised from society. And how much of that is so embedded into like healthcare systems, even national healthcare systems? Like you know in the UK, for example. Uh, you know, one of the sort of other layers, the more recent layers have been, that have been added to this is the idea that anyone who works in a public building or who works in a public position basically has to sort of adopt the role of being a police officer as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, they have to actually like report people that they view are, that like, could be sort of like credible national security threats, even if like they are sort of being seen in a kind of therapeutic context, in a medical context and so on, like they are mandated to actually have to do that. but Within the actual like structures that they work in, like you know the use of these types of tools, and again, like I, I feel like some of this is like you know a product of what happens if healthcare systems are you know exist in service or like exist only in service to capital, and therefore the people who are like threats to that don't necessarily have to be threats because they are incapable or like they are sort of like unable to facilitate the sort of pr- like the progression of cap- capital, but if they are sort of considered to be active threats to its ideological underpinnings then you know the healthcare system is also one that is punitive as well i wondered whether you could talk a little bit about the relationship between surveillance and healthcare as you sort of understand it and the ways in which like new technologies, um, be it like AI technologies or just be it like recognition technologies, but are being introduced into these systems as a mean, you know, sometimes even as a means of like, you know, making healthcare cheaper, more affordable, more accessible, like how is this sort of shaping the way that people understand or people think about their relationship to healthcare.
1: Mm, that's such a good question, and I also want to emphasize that it's also changing the way healthcare workers are relating to their mm, work. Yeah, exactly. Too. Yeah, like that's 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 a huge part of this as well. I mean, AI and healthcare. Ugh, this is like a long history, right? Like healthcare uh, as a space. Really, I think. Um, is one where it's easy to justify using uh, statistical analysis to engage in any kind of cost benefit mm-hmm. um, uh, kind of thought processes. There's, Um, You know, in the in the US, we we as part of the Affordable Care Act, there was an expansion to the electronic medical records kind of Mm. um, standards that was really formative. And when we talk about the the ACA, we don't actually often talk about the electronic medical record part. But Mm. when the ACA was being sold, this was sold as like super liberatory, like, oh, my God, guess what? your mm. health records are going to be portable. You're going to be able to have control over your private health information and take that from one doctor to the next and not, you know, chase after the doctor actually modeled on the way that if your chart is generated in one NHS hospital, it can be read by another doctor in another NHS hospital that you might end up in later, right? Like so it was mm. literally inspired by um, some of the centralized, capacities of um, how NHS charts work, except Mm -hmm. for it was in the United States. So this became a new, huge um, sort of industry. It was an industry that preceded this, obviously, but this became an opportunity for a lot of taxpayer money of of state money to go into subsidizing, um, the expansion of this for providing incentives to hospital groups that would adopt this. And so we have seen the explosion and proliferation of electronic medical records in the United States to Mm. the point that, for example, many healthcare workers now, if they work in a hospital setting in particular, they cannot do shit without scanning something into the Epic, uh, medical record system. And Epic is a private company that, uh, you know, is actually known in the U S for basically having kind of like a theme park style campus where Mm -hmm. there's like a Harry Potter room and a slide. And it's like real dystopian kind of like roadside tourist vibes. And this company, you know, they create the software that works terribly, that creates all of this excess data, um, you know, that produces like literally, you know, the, the kind of new uh, interfaces that that meter out care that can delay care, but that also like prevent us from engaging in old forms of resistance. For example, like often on the left, we'll talk about like really uh, sort of important or famous touchstones. Like when the young lords like seized the hospital in New York City and they Mm. ran the hospital for the community. Um, Things like, you know, the Black Panther uh, community clinics, but that kind of idea of being able to seize a hospital now, for example, is impossible because the hospital administrators would call Epic and Epic would shut down the electronic health record system, which controls everything from, you know, patient intake to giving someone medication to opening the drawer. Everything has to be scanned. So it's introduced like opportunities for commodification. It's introduced, you know, increased surveillance, which again, you know, goes both in the way of like commodification and also in terms of sort of Um, and privacy concerns and things like that. Um, but mm. it also um, is a kind of counterinsurgent tactic, right? That that mm. takes um, the hospital as a site of resistance and says, this is no longer a site of resistance, which was already a huge um, kind of contentious debate within healthcare worker spaces, right? Which is like, can we do labor actions responsibly without you know abandoning mm-hmm. our patients right like this is a huge debate so in the 70s in the US we saw this whole wave of healthcare workers coming to the decision mutually of like we want to protest our working conditions we don't want to abandon our our patients and the mm-hmm. context of the hospital we work in means that we can't go on strike because it's not an elective thing it's an emergency room so rather than go on strike, we will seize the hospital and run the mm. hospital and refuse to charge people. So the hospital mm. makes no money until they see to our demands, right? But so this, this kind of labor action for healthcare workers actually in the evolution of surveillance technology in healthcare, like it's not just made healthcare shittier, more austere, more commodified, right? It also mm. literally has undermined strategies for building power for healthcare workers, For leftists, for patient movements. And it has basically kind of almost guaranteed um, the restriction of certain types of of care using these tools, right? Whether that's denials or that's allocation or, you know, like it's more black box kind of algorithms, like the ones that were used to make estimates about which COVID patients were going to survive or die early on to try and deal with those resources. Like the algorithm was employed in the NHS. It was employed in mm. the U S it was employed all over the world. It was designed by Epic. It had mm. been untested, right? Like <laughs> it would put out this score like every 20 minutes. And we mm. were using this untested, like, uh, you know, equation from these like really evil capitalist Fox, like, you know, to decide who was going to get the respirator or not in the early months of covid mm-hmm. like and we have only seen this be used against hospital employees against patients to deny care these are tools of profiteering not just because like you know they're coming from ai or whatever or they're tech innovations like this isn't like a ludism thing it's because they're designed to take, um, you know, healthcare, which is already an extractive system of wealth transfer, and mm. optimize it, right, and make it more efficient so that more points of extraction can be made and more profit can be bled out of the system that is already not serving us.
0: Mm. Um, I'm just conscious about time, so I wanted to ask like you a couple more questions before I like. Even though there's like there's so much I would I would like to ask, you, and maybe one day we can like revisit uh, some of the questions. One of the questions that I had was about, and I sort of alluded to this at the beginning, was the way in which uh, people like people are tr- sort of trained to provide healthcare um like you know whether it be like medical schools or the way in which like medical resources are or medical like, pro- like provisions are outsourced um and the ways in which like that outsource affects provision and who who has access to what particularly because like so much of that is very much dependent on how much access to capital you have um but i wondered whether like you know when we're sort of thinking about what could a better health system actually look like what could health communism look like um, when we think about the ways in which healthcare is like how people are sort of trained to give healthcare, like what are, like, are there any sort of things that you would like to see or like things that you've been thinking about that can help us sort of even like, well, there's a structure that could sort of help us rethink what healthcare actually is. So one of the examples that you know, and I've been very interested in, uh, generally has been, um, DIY like healthcare and especially among like trans mm-hmm. people, the trans community, DIY HRT um, is kind of like this kind of great, you know, uh, there's like some very interesting things sort of happening in those spaces, uh, and conversations around like, well, do you, so sort of like, if we are, if we are sort of like to provide for our community, then, you know, what, like, how can we sort of train each other? How can we sort of like learn from each other? And like, this isn't like a new phenomenon by any means, like, you know, there are lots mm-hmm. of, you know, uh, in, you know, lots of other sort of global communities, like, you know, this sort of real formal institutionalization of uh medicine uh, is still somewhat absent. There is still, you know, there are different ways of like, kind of actually even teaching healthcare without you know, those types of formal structures. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I guess my broader thing Mm -hmm. is like, in order for health communism to sort of like become, or like to be tangible, to be functional, um, and to sort of like achieve the goals that we all wanted to achieve. What does like, how does like training healthcare actually look like in your mind?
1: Oh my gosh. I mean, it, it, it looks so different, um, than anything we're familiar with. And I, I think the problem with, uh, you know imagining health communism from the standpoint where we're all you know coming from now is that we are so embedded in a system that has no name right mm-hmm. like the version of health that we live with goes unnamed and is treated as like self-evident fact like it doesn't even need a name because that's just the way it is and mm-hmm. and part of what we're trying to do in the book is name health communism in naming its opposite and describing its opposite and sort of articulating its opposite as only one approach to health, one very, very dominant approach to health, yet only one approach nonetheless. So Mm. in some ways, health communism is a project that, that we're Calling people to take up with us. And it starts, I think, by looking towards how do we um, distribute resources? How do we expropriate resources? And how do we think up systems of um, distributing education and information? Mm-hmm. Um, at an international scale and looking towards learning from our comrades in other countries, in other health systems, in coming to these conversations, being humble and knowing that like we're not looking for one um, system to also reproduce everywhere, because I don't think there's like a one-size-fits-all solution to any of this stuff, right? Which is why the mm-hmm. demand is all care for all people. So Part of what we're looking at right now is a system where what we understand medical care to be is entirely dictated by essentially what Mm. various health systems or insurance companies will pay for and the reasons why they'll pay for various things are usually um, controlled by certain systems that are both flexible, but also which put on the table certain burdens of proof, right? Whether that's like um, scientific studies or, um, you know, randomized control trials for medication safety, you know, things like that. So there's kind mm-hmm. of like the the ways that we um, restrict and regulate things uh, and then the different information and sort of burdens of proof that we place there. And then obviously who has access to being able to produce that knowledge and information to meet that requirement of burden of proof, right? So like, for example, the the kind of understanding of like the landscape of, of drugs in the United States is, is often um, that everybody has access to all the drugs that we have all over the world and that's so not mm. true. Mm. Um, and as folks in the UK know, like there are really um, much fewer drugs approved in the UK and in the EU um, then in the United States, for example, there's a huge, um, you know, variance from country to country, from system to system in terms of what drugs are covered and what the safety standards are. Right. Mm. And so as much as we think of like the U S uh, food and drug administration as some kind of clearinghouse, right? Like this is a mirage of imperialism that we are all bought into. That is not to say that like the FDA, um, doesn't do some part to make drugs safe. But a lot of the the things that actually make drugs safe, for example, medications safe, medical procedures safe, is not actually the institutions of the state, but all of these different independent researchers and um, studies that are being run kind of autonomously. And so a lot of this stuff actually, even within the institutional scale, is a lot like less quote unquote official as we're taught to think about it right Mm -hmm. like it is not even though the the nih in the united states funds so much research right like the state is not like itself going out in a capacity to you know make sure that all food and drugs are actually safe the the vast amount of things that for example like the fda can even inspect in terms of like safe food practices and and supply is like absolutely minuscule compared with the amount that like moves through the economy. So part of like the struggle, right, is sort of how do we take these kind of resources and access to the education required to participate in what is already kind of an an amorphous collective process of quote unquote, like, you know, coming to scientific consensus. Mm. And like, yes, absolutely. Like, these are kinds of the the problems that like we've been dealing with with COVID for a number of years now. But I think we have really kind of proven our failure, um, for example, in particular around the way that information was controlled um, as part of vaccine apartheid in, in the kind of global scale up of vaccine production. You know, we saw all sorts of decisions that were made to preserve the property of of Pfizer and Moderna um, over getting, you know, Mm. vaccines produced in a way where, you know, folks could make them themselves. And I think, you know, when we look at DIY HRT, when we look at the kind of knowledge production within the trans community, we have a really good example of how sometimes for populations that are also surplused who are abandoned by traditional research structures, the only way to achieve FDA-like or EU-certified-like safety, right, is through Mm -hmm. your own community and through decentralized forms of DIY knowledge production. So for example, some of the best information we have on dosing for HRT doesn't come from formal studies. It came from trans message boards where people mm. were aggregating their own experiences um you know how people had fared on certain things because this was an area where research was being refused, where the resources for this knowledge production was refused, where the people in the subject position were refused access to the physician role, to the researcher role, because they were surplused and on the forced sort of margins, right? And so in some ways, when we start thinking about medical education, about science education, we also have to start thinking about like who is allowed to do research, who is research for, right? Mm. How is research funded? Um, what is research and, and how do all of these sort of different industries um, benefit from the current way that we focus research and how can we sort of focus research in a way that benefits the people and mm. not just the people of one country at the expense of people outside of those borders, but how do we actually mm. learn to engage in global pharmaceutical production without extracting from the global South, you know, Mm. producing disability, producing harm, destruction of the environment in the process. Like we can do these things. It requires us to put a little work into some central planning to humbly listen to like what the needs are of people are outside of our borders to tackle problems that we are told are too big for us to tackle and think about because they belong to these global industries and we are up against you know a tremendous structure of power but at the end of the day what we have that that all of (laughs) these kind of structures don't is the benefit of actually lived experience and imagination and i know that might sound like a little Mm -hmm. weird or woo woo or bullshit but like Literally, we are already like taking care of each other on a day-to-day basis in a way mm-hmm. that um, modifies and builds on all of these systems of care. We know best the users of these systems, the workers in these systems, particularly the lower you are on the chain of command as a worker, right? We all know best how to run and do these things better. And so, part of sort of the step towards health communism is realizing what are these institutions that we are participating in and part of actually for? And can we strip some of these eugenic um, values, some of these values that are racist, colonial, mm. <laughs> extractive, and not productive of quote unquote the possibility of total well being for anyone? Except for the ruling class? How do we strip these things out of the institutions that we have and attempt to steer them towards what we actually think that they are? And as long as they're allowed to continue living as these kind of beneficial institutions, right? Living under the auspices that they're here to care for us and not here to subsidize the wealth and the growth of the United Kingdom's power and and GDP, right? For example the longer they're allowed to also provide that benevolent cover for the state. Because at the end of the day, like the state benefits from like these colonial powers. They benefit from the fact that we think that they have stood up institutions to care for us. Mm. And they benefit twice, right? Because we give them the benefit of the doubt because they're giving us the health care, right? And so we think Mm. that's for us. And so then it also benefits the corporations, right? Because they know what's really for them, right? It's for the wealth building, Mm -hmm. it's for the economy. And so the state wins on both ends, right? Where they can talk out of both sides of their mouth, but, you know, the folks who are working on the kind of industry executive side, the folks from United Healthcare coming in and pitching UK lawmakers on why they need to give United Healthcare the contract for coming in to privatize whatever the fuck. Like, mm. they know who the NHS is for. They think the NHS is for them. Right. Mm. And it's up to us to disabuse them of that. And, Ultimately, what that will involve is also being real with ourselves about what it is for, and how that doesn't measure up to what it should be.
0: Mm. I think on that note, because uh, because there's like a lot of uh, uh, some of the like ending questions I wanted to ask you, rodic right, actually already answered. Plus, I also thought. I was like a really good way to end it um although that being said beaches we'd love to have you back on uh, I'd like to talk about this some more because it was such so, it's such an interesting and really useful text uh especially like for anyone Thank who you. is sort of interested in really thinking about the reconceptualization of health and what well, I, I wish that one of the things that we could talk about in a lot more detail was is just sort of um how the idea of like or sort of like the realities of kind of building a health communism is sort of rooted in a like in a sort of attempt to better understand, uh, social relationships and, you know, reciprocity, what communal care actually is and what it could be. I feel like all these things are kind of like really essential to then kind of figuring out like how could sort of a formal, like health, or how could like a more formal, like medical system be built on top of that. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. kind of like a good way of thinking, but it's something that hopefully we can maybe revisit, uh, fairly soon. In the meantime, uh, we have run out of time, unfortunately. So Beatrice, thank you so much coming on the show and thank you so much for talking about this book and thank you to you and uh, your co-writer uh Artie for like re- for writing it um if the if uh, our listeners want to uh follow the stuff that you do or listen to your podcast how can they do that
1: well anywhere you uh listen to podcasts already you can search death panel um, and we should pop up. It's like a black, uh, square with just white text, um, for our little thumbnail, you know? Um, but we do two episodes a week and, uh, we talk a- in a lot more detail about some of these ideas that we're kind of setting up this conceptual foundation for in health communism. So, you know, while there's a lot of like history in health communism and a lot of history on death panel, um, there are also uh, three other fantastic collaborators that Artie and I get the immense honor and pleasure of working with um, who are great, um, Phil Rocco, Abby Cardis, and Jules Gil-Peterson. And if folks want to learn more in particular about you know some of the uh, histories of, of knowledge production in trans DIY communities, Jules's work is so fantastic. We have a lot of great episodes on that. She's done a lot of writing on that. She has like a new book coming out in January with Verso. Um, It's also really great that you should pre-order called a short history of trans misogyny. So at the risk of like self-promoting to such a meta extent that, you know, I just like come off like a total asshole. <laughs> um, I just wanted to shout out her, her work as like a great starting point for that. And, and yeah, mm. um, yeah, we're, we're around, you know, we've just been doing our thing for a while now and and people think of us as the COVID podcast sometimes, but that's more just that like COVID was where our, you know, we were on that beat already uh, on the um, repression health and, uh, and labor discipline beat <laughs> um, when COVID happened. So yeah, we also cover that a lot. We'll,
0: we'll put the link... Yeah. We'll put the link to uh, the Deaf panel website with all the relevant links in there. We'll also put the link to uh, Health Communism, which is published by Verso in the UK, uh, where you can purchase a copy. Uh, again, please don't use Amazon if you really... No. Please please don't no. use Amazon unless you really have to. Um, but I think the Verso is quite good. And they're like, you know, uh, they've. It's, it's very easy to buy stuff on there. So if you do want to buy the book, buy it from Verso or borrow it from a library. Um, borrow
1: it from a library request it from your library yeah Absolutely. well
0: well, libraries in the UK that's another subject for another for another, for another podcast um, but if you can get it ordered to your library do do that um, uh, thank you so much for listening to this free episode of 10,000 posts we really appreciate it again there are there's also really good bonus content on our Patreon uh, five bucks a month it helps us to run the show it helps us to run it with our ads and it helps us to keep doing the things that we really love to do so thank you for your support um, and if you don't uh, support us yet but are considering it uh yeah it's all all on patreon we have a lot of really good content on there um phoebe is away but we will put the links to her Substack in this in the show notes as always and as always this show is produced by devon you can follow them at devon underscore on earth uh and also listen to their podcast which is called kill james bond um i think that's it so until next time we'll catch you later bye